Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers and Confident Women, and numerous articles online that span a long freelance career. I have articles from think pieces on why there are so many movies being made about Ted Bundy to articles from about 10 years ago that are like the best DIY avocado honey mask to put on your face. I never said I started out as a <laughs> as the billionaire true crime writer I am today. No, I started out my freelance writing career writing beauty and fashion articles for $25 a pop, three articles a day, all due before noon, living in Chicago, waitressing at night, and honestly wouldn't want to do it again, but I look back on that time in my life fondly. And if you want to start out as a freelance writer, you might have to start with one of those soulless grind gigs, but do it. Because one day, you could be sitting in your closet talking into a microphone all by yourself. Okay, I didn't mean to get into my life story here today. That was just the first thing that came to mind. Um, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're hydrating. It's very hot out there in a lot of places in the U.S. right now. International listeners, I don't care what the weather is like where you are. You need to hydrate too. Hydration is very important. Okay, before we get into today's story, I want to beg a moment of your time. I don't have any ads today, so you don't have to sit through any ads. Instead, I was hoping I could just direct you in lieu of an ad to check out this great organization that I recently found. It's called lastprisonerproject.org. And they're basically trying to grant clemency or have President Biden grant clemency to, quote, the thousands of people incarcerated due to or otherwise still burdened by federal cannabis-related convictions. Let me try to put that in plain English. Pretty sure what they're saying is it's kind of ridiculous we live in a country where you can become a millionaire by selling weed or selling, like, your fancy schmancy, like, you know, product, like, weed-infused products while other people, mostly black and brown people, languish in jail for having a little bit of weed on them. So I'm really into this organization. I think they look really cool and not to be shallow, but they have some cool merch. So check it out, lastprisonerproject.org. I'll put the link in the show notes. All right, today's story is one, in a way, I feel like it's a quote-unquote classic story of a female murderer because it seems like it could appear on Snapped or Deadly Women. I don't think it has. I don't know. Honestly, I don't watch those shows. I don't like how they treat the subject matter usually. They're very salacious. But this seems like one of those stories, you know, if you just, if I just summarized it for you really quickly here, which I'm not going to because I don't want to give it away. It sounds kind of like, ooh, she did what now? Oh, that's so like, what a bad girl. (laughs) Um, And I'm not saying that what happened was not bad, but as with all things that we find in this podcast, once you take a closer look, you realize just how many twists and turns there are and also like some weird gaps in the reporting of the case. That was one of the things that really struck me when I was researching this is like there is a huge chunk of information missing when you read about this case in the contemporary newspaper 
coverage of it. It shocked me. It astounded me. So let's get into it, guys. We're going to Florida. We're going to spend most of our time in South Florida in Fort Lauderdale, which is actually where our Rosemarks episode took place, if you listen to that one. And we're going back to the year, long, long time ago, the year 2011. Come with me. No one had much to say about Catherine Poligi, or if they did, they weren't telling the media. She was the oldest of eight children, but one of her sisters was dead, and the other had just finished suing her, and wherever the rest of them were, they were keeping their mouths shut. The people who were talking to the press about Catherine always seemed to mention how quiet she was. Her boyfriend's lawyer said that she was very quiet, real soft-spoken. Her ex-husband, the one she was married to for five months, said she was so easygoing, she never complained about anything. Her stepmother said, in all honesty, she wouldn't even say anything that would hurt somebody's feelings. In contrast, everyone had a lot to say about Catherine's boyfriend. He was the extroverted one, the colorful character, the one who told dirty jokes, the one with a bad temper, the drinker, the party animal, the guy who was in great shape for being 70. And, you know, he was the one found wrapped in a sleeping bag with a bullet in his head and painter's tape holding his stomach together. With details like that, of course people were going to focus on the boyfriend. And so Catherine... Very quiet, real soft-spoken, so easygoing, never complained, never said anything that would hurt anyone's feelings. She faded into the background, even though she was the one who put that bullet in that head. Here's the little we know about Catherine Marie Pileggi. She was a white woman, born in the fall of 1956, in the little city of Grovetown, Georgia. She was one of eight kids, the oldest. Those who knew the Pileggi family back then remember them as being close. Catherine went to high school at Harlem High School, and she was the captain of the cheerleading squad. She also participated in the Miss Columbia County Cattleman Beauty Contest. She was very pretty, very tiny. She graduated and went on to work as a lab technician at a hospital. One of her co-workers from that hospital had a big crush on her. He couldn't help noticing that all the guys who knew Catherine had crushes on her. She was hard not to fall for. He described her like this. She was a typical Southern girl, beautiful smile, very, very attractive, an outgoing personality. She wasn't quiet then. She'd get quiet later. Now, she never married any of the guys who had crushes on her, and this would become a sore spot for Catherine, the never-been-married part. This would become significant later. 
But she also seemed to want to see the world. At some point in the 80s, when she would have been in her late 20s or early 30s, she left her job at the hospital and started working for Delta Airlines as a flight attendant. In 1993, when she was about 37, she flew into San Diego and met another person who loved planes. He would be her on-and-off boyfriend for the next 18 years. His name was Ron Vinci. Once Ron Vinci enters the story, we suddenly get more details about everything. We might know very little about Catherine's childhood. What was she really like beneath the cheerleading and the good looks? What was life actually like in that house of eight children? We don't get those details, but with Ron around, outgoing millionaire Ron, everything springs into life. Ronald Charles Vincy was born in 1940, making him 16 years older than Catherine. He was a stereotypical self-made American man, came from nothing, made something of himself, and then spent his long retirement drinking with his buddies and buying expensive toys like planes and helicopters. He had started selling Honda motorcycles in the 1960s with only about $1,500 to his name, but he turned it into a fortune, especially when Honda brought over their first cars to the U.S. and Ron started selling those. You can imagine how much money he made, said a friend of the family. People described Ron as wealthy, but down to earth. He liked a good deal, and he didn't go around wearing three-piece suits or anything like that. Though, for multimillionaires, down-to-earth is a bit of a relative term. He lived in ritzy Rancho Santa Fe, a place in California that's a little bit cowboy and a whole lot billionaire. There, Ron irritated his wealthy neighbors by building a helicopter landing pad on his property. He liked to casually take a helicopter to work. He would land it on the roof of one of his Honda dealerships. His neighbors found the whole thing intensely irritating, and you can imagine how loud it was. And so they protested, and his permit for landing helicopters was revoked. The whole drama made the papers. Ron told a journalist angrily, The wives of a lot of these Rancho Santa Fe types play bridge with people on the board of supervisors. You fill in the blanks. So that's Ron's fortune. But let's talk about his love life. He married his wife, Pamela, in 1963. They were married for 20 years, had a son together, and then divorced. This marriage was mentioned in the papers later, when Ron died. But no one mentioned his second marriage to a woman named Sandra. The two of them got married in the early 90s and then got divorced in 1994. If you're keeping track of all the dates here, 1994 is a year after Ron and Catherine Pileggi were supposed to have started dating. What does this mean? Well, perhaps the start of the Ron-Catherine relationship wasn't all that tidy. That would be fitting, because the end of their relationship certainly wasn't tidy either. It wasn't exactly a love story for the ages in the swoony romantic sense. From the start, the two of them were very different. Catherine was making a tiny salary as a flight attendant, and Ron was buying his own planes. 
Who knows what financial specifics they worked out behind the scenes, but from the outside, it was pretty obvious that they were living on Ron's dime. That Catherine, when she became Ron's girlfriend, got a pretty significant life upgrade. But they were on again, off again. They broke up around the turn of the millennium, and Ron dated another woman for several years. During that time, Catherine did something she'd always wanted to do. She got married. Now, Excuse me while I theorize, but we know that Catherine felt sad about marriage because of something she told this husband. And why did she feel sad? Well, there's a lot of pressure on women to get married, a lot of skepticism given from society to women who aren't married. You know, what's wrong with you? Are you pathetic or something? But I wonder if she felt a more specific pressure. Her mother died in 2003, and in the obituary, you can find the long list of Catherine's siblings—Frankie, Debbie, Becky, Angela, Patricia, Melissa, and Michael. Now, all of the girls, other than Catherine, have new last names. This means that Catherine had watched all five of her little sisters walk down the aisle while nothing changed for her. You can imagine— the sorts of comments she might have gotten at those weddings, the little painful barbs slung at her. But now she was married. She was finally married. It all happened fast. The man was a retired insurance executive named Duilio Corgliano. They met in April of 2001 through a mutual friend, and they got married one month later at the courthouse. Like Ron, Duilio was older than Catherine. He found her quiet and laid back, and he really liked that about her. She was so easygoing, he said. She never complained about anything. It was kind of like having a little pussycat. She did complain about one thing, though. She complained about her ex, Ron. She told Duilio that Ron was verbally abusive to her when he got drunk, and that he often got drunk. She said that she hated his habit of making sexually explicit comments about other women to his friends. And she told Duilio that Ron hadn't wanted to marry her. She was kind of sad because she had never been married before, said Duilio. Her family didn't believe she was ever going to get married. In fact, her family was so convinced that she would never marry Ron that, years later, her father told the press that neither Catherine or Ron had any plans to get married— But it seemed like he was wrong. It was Ron who had no plans to get married. But Catherine might have had her secret hopes. After a few months of marriage to Duilio, the calm little pussycat changed. Catherine started asking her new husband for very large amounts of money, $4,000 to $5,000 a month. She said things like, well, that's what my friends get from their boyfriends. She told him she needed the money for her sister, who was addicted to cocaine. And then she said she wanted flying lessons. He gave her the money for those, and then she told him she lost the check. Duilio didn't like this new version of Catherine. In this quiet little mouse, there was a sudden change, he said. He told her the marriage had been a mistake. After only five months, they got divorced. He kept all his money, she kept hers— His assets were worth $4,565,300. She had $8,000. The divorce was fairly pleasant as far as divorces go, but afterward, she sat there on the sofa in the condo that she was going to have to leave, and she said, 
What's the point of living? Things never work out. There's just no point. She wasn't single for long, though, because eventually Catherine and Ron got back together. Maybe she loved him passionately and had loved him all along. Maybe she just needed the money. It had to be said that their lifestyle was pretty fabulous, like taking private planes down to the Bahamas fabulous. In 2005, Ron decided to move down to South Florida to really live out his retired party boy dreams, and Catherine went with him. He bought a couple of condos and a house, and he partied. His friends would come over to his house almost every day. They called it the clubhouse. Sometimes he'd take them to a beach bar called the Treasure Trove for $1 Taco Tuesdays. Other nights, he'd party at this nightclub called Exit 66, where he'd be drinking and rubbing elbows with all the spring breakers. He was full of jokes, and he liked to make fun of his own age. He told one waiter... You're a waiter? Yeah, my son's a waiter, too. He's waiting for me to die. He liked to go up to the biggest guy in the bar and yell, jokingly, You want to fight? His friends remembered that he liked women, looked at women, and made plenty of raunchy comments about women, which Catherine hated. But he wasn't sleeping around. Instead, he'd joke with women about being too old, saying, You know I've got a dead dick. Where was Catherine during these long, drunken nights? At home, probably. Ron's friends don't remember seeing her in the foreground much. She didn't drink a lot. She didn't talk much. She would retreat into the background and hang out with herself. Sometimes she watched true crime documentaries or TV shows for hours. Other times she would appear and just play bartender. Ron often said, make me a drink, and she'd do it. He preferred gin and tonics. Gin with a splash of tonic, that is. It wasn't like they never hung out as a couple, though. Sometimes they explored the water together, but this was fraught because Catherine was terrified of the ocean. Ron would try to set up activities like scuba diving to help her conquer her fear, but it never worked. She couldn't get over it. If she feared the deep, she didn't mind the air, though. Apparently, she had learned to fly at some point because Ron would let her fly his private planes whenever she wanted to. Sometimes she'd take one to Georgia, where she had unfinished business with her family. See, Catherine and her family, specifically two of her sisters, had a really odd thing going on. Maybe they really were happy and close-knit when they were all kids, as some locals remember, But as grown women, Catherine and her sisters, Angela and Melissa, had a strange, antagonistic relationship. Catherine and Angela got along, even though Angela had a drug problem and Catherine worried about her. But neither of them seemed to get along with Melissa, and Melissa certainly didn't get along with them. The first sign of antagonism that I could find in the papers happened after Catherine's divorce from Duilio Corgliano. After it happened, her sister, Melissa, called up Duilio and said that Catherine had stolen jewelry from him. Was this true? I have no idea. But it wasn't the only time the girls flung accusations at each other. 
At one point, Melissa gave some money to Catherine, and then she filed a civil suit against her sister, saying that Catherine hadn't repaid her. Catherine argued in court that the money had been a gift. Melissa argued that it had been a loan. The judge agreed with Catherine. It gets weirder. Apparently, Melissa dated Phil Spector once, the famous producer for acts like Ike and Tina Turner and The Beatles. In 2003, Phil Spector murdered the actress Lena Clarkson, and Melissa testified against him at one of his trials. She got up on the witness stand and said that she had dated Phil Spector and that when she tried to leave his house one night, he pointed a gun at her. And then another Pelleggi sister took the stand. Angela. Angela was there to testify against Melissa. She called her sister a liar. She said that Melissa was a fame whore who was making the whole thing up and who just wanted to get on court TV. The prosecutor brought up Melissa's shady past. Apparently, in 1989, she had been convicted for embezzling money from a bank where she worked. In response, Melissa said that Angela was a drug addict who was probably being paid by Phil Spector. Here's her quote. My sister is a drug addict. I put her in rehab. I stopped giving her money. And I think now Spector is giving her money. That's why she is doing this against me. Are you still with me? We've gotten pretty far from Catherine's story. But this shows you what sort of family environment she came from. Most siblings don't sue each other, don't rat each other out to their ex-husbands, don't take the witness stand against each other. There was some darkness there, hovering in the air between the girls. And things were only going to get worse. Despite all their drama with Melissa, Catherine and Angela got along, like I said. Catherine felt protective of her little sister. She probably wanted her to be happy. Her life as an addict hadn't been easy. And so one day in 2009, Catherine invited her little sister to come along on her wealthy boyfriend's yacht. The three of them, Catherine, Ron, and Angela, took Ron's yacht south. This yacht was 80 feet long and called the Captain Ron, and they took it 1,500 miles south of Florida through the blue-green sea and all the vivid sunsets the Caribbean could muster until they arrived at tiny St. Lucia, an island in the West Indies. There, they tied up the yacht in a harbor and staggered onto dry land. Before long, Angela had hit it off with a guy who worked there in the harbor, and soon enough the two of them were hopping onto mopeds to explore the island. Later that evening, everyone reunited at the harbor to party. At one point, Ron gave Angela a handful of pills, some of his antidepressant pills. He knew she liked pills. By 10 p.m., Catherine and Ron were tired, and so they went back to the yacht to sleep but Angela and her friend from the harbor continued to party. It was early in the morning when Angela's new friend brought her back to the yacht. She was sick. She could hardly talk. She'd been having convulsions. Catherine sprang into action and started performing CPR on her little sister. They got a taxi and rushed to the hospital as Catherine kept trying to get Angela to wake up. 
but nothing worked. Angela was pronounced dead at the hospital of cardiorespiratory arrest due to acute intoxication. It was the pills, Catherine thought. How could Ron have given Angela, a known drug addict, pills? It was the pills that killed her, the pills that put her over the edge. And she told Ron this. Ron told a friend later that as far as Angela's death went, Catherine, quote, blames me 100%. Imagine the last horrifying moments of Angela's life. Imagine being Catherine, speeding along in a cab, 1,500 miles from home, trying desperately to keep your little sister breathing. Imagine the slow, creeping rage that would fill you once the panic died down. The thought that your sister would still be alive if your boyfriend hadn't been such a fool, such a pathetic party animal. Imagine holding on to that rage for the next two years. It wasn't the sort of thing you could just forget. By 2011, Catherine and Ron were more like brother and sister than boyfriend and girlfriend, according to a friend. They didn't sleep in the same bed anymore. They often stayed in different houses. Ron wanted to break up, but Catherine didn't. All of Ron's friends knew that he wanted to break it off. He kept talking about it. To one of them, he said that the relationship had run its course, but that he would make sure Catherine would be well provided for. He told another friend that he'd wanted to end the relationship for the past five years. His friends knew things weren't great between the two of them. They'd seen the couple fight. They knew Ron could be a bit, shall we say, much when he drank. Once he pointed a gun at a friend. He'd wave it around when he was drunk. It was always that drinking that got him into trouble. One too many gins with a splash of tonics and he'd be off. One of his former employees described Ron as having two personalities. He was kind when sober and cruel when drunk. He'd be so abusive, said the employee. And in the morning, he's sorry, everything's good. You know, he'd make you feel like a million dollars again. So it was, I think, maybe for Catherine, it was just a vicious cycle. This same employee once saw Ron push Catherine down the stairs on his boat Another time, he heard Ron snap that Catherine had nothing without him. So from the outside, it might have looked like Ron held all the power in their relationship. But did he? One day, he was struck by abdominal pains so bad that he went to the hospital. Later, he told several of his friends his dark suspicion. Was Catherine poisoning him? One of those friends looked at a bottle of Ron's beloved Tanqueray gin and noticed that it was suspiciously cloudy. Ron still had the gumption to buy real estate, though. Even though he already owned multiple properties, he couldn't resist buying a new house in June of 2011. The address was 101 Coconut Drive, and it was a steal at $3 million. Seriously, it was a steal. It was valued at almost $5 million. 
This house had everything. Five bedrooms, six bathrooms, a dock on the water, a pool, a jacuzzi, and marble floors. Oh, and an elevator. Four days after buying the home, Ron had one of his friends break up with Catherine for him. The friend, Spencer Gordon, did it dutifully. Spencer and Catherine were in a plane together, flying from the Bahamas back to Florida, And in the sky, Spencer told Catherine that Ron wanted to end things, but that he would let her stay at his condo until he sold it, and that he would also pay her $1 million. Catherine responded, I'm not interested. They didn't talk about it again. A week after that, Catherine stopped by one of Ron's other homes, looking for something. Two days after that... Ron confided in a friend that he couldn't find his passport or one of his guns. The next day was June 27th. Catherine kept busy. She went to a store called Brownie's Yacht Diver, where Ron had an account, and she bought some diving weights. She told the clerk that the weights were for Ron, and she explained how much Ron weighed. The thinking would be that the weights needed to be heavy enough to bring his body all the way down to the bottom of the ocean floor, right? That was what you did when you dove. She spent $200 on them. That evening, she and Ron had friends over for dinner. Well, they had Ron's friends over. The friends' names were Terry Leipzig and Spencer Gordon, the one who tried to break up with Catherine in the plane by proxy. They ate Chinese food, which Catherine had heated up. Ron complained that the food tasted bitter. They drank. Ron was drinking his usual, Tanqueray with a hint of tonic, and Catherine mixed them up dutifully. He complained to her that they were too strong, and they were strong, By 7.15, Ron was passed out on the couch. Spencer and Terry left. That was weird, they thought. Drinking usually turned Ron into quite the party animal. He was never the type to pass out before it was even dark outside. But oh well, they went home. The next morning, Spencer got a strange call. The caller was Ron's handyman, a man named Reynaldo Silva. Reynaldo was totally panicking. He kept saying, Ron's passed, Ron's passed. Spencer thought, Ron's passed out? Yeah, sounds about right. But why the fear in Reynaldo's voice? So Spencer called Terry, who had been there with him the previous evening, and they headed over to 101 Coconut Drive. When they got there, Catherine met them at the door. She told them that Ron was out with a friend, They thought this was strange because, frankly, they knew all his friends. No, it's a friend from out of town, she said. Meanwhile, Reynaldo was standing behind her, looking terrified. He pointed to the bedroom. When Catherine wasn't paying attention, he whispered, There's a bag. Ron's in the bag. Spencer said he needed to, uh, use the bathroom. He snuck into the bedroom instead. It looked normal. He came back out. 
behind the bed, said Reynaldo. Spencer went back in and looked behind the bed. He saw a huge duffel bag, all zipped up. He unzipped it, stuck his hand inside, felt something. Something that felt like Ron. He zipped it right back up. He went back to the group. Reynaldo, Terry, why don't you leave for a second, he said. When he was alone with Catherine, he asked her for the truth. Where is Ron and what is in that bag? Catherine started crying. He's dead, she said. He went down the stairs. 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 I messed him up. Spencer got Terry, and along with Catherine, they all went back into the bedroom. There, they opened the bag a bit further. There was a sleeping bag inside and a bunch of sheets and plastic bags, and everything was covered with coffee grounds. Spencer looked closer. He saw something. A human hand. Okay, he was done here. He closed the bag for the second time and asked Catherine what she was going to tell the police. I don't think they're going to believe it was an accident, she said. Why not? Spencer asked. Because, said Catherine, there's a bullet hole in him. Eight days after killing Ron, Catherine turned herself in. She had a lawyer by then, a lawyer that Spencer helped her find. Her lawyer told her that she was wanted on charges of first-degree murder, and so she took herself to the police. The papers exploded with the story. Her stepmother told a journalist, in all honesty, she wouldn't even say anything that would hurt somebody's feelings. And that was about all the information we got about Catherine. Details about the crime, though, leaked out in the press from warrants and affidavits. The police found a large blue storage container that Catherine had bought at Home Depot the morning after Ron's death. They noted the diving weights and the coffee grounds. In the warrant, they wrote that all this indicated a thought-out plan of getting rid of the body and concealing the odor of the body. One journalist pointed out that using coffee grounds to cover up smells was an old flight attendant trick. Detectives also found Catherine's diary, and they took it in as evidence, noting that it contained a heavy emphasis on Ron's moods and actions. Several months after the murder, the police went back to 101 Coconut Drive and took in Ron's tank array, the bottle that was cloudy. They tested it and found that it contained an insecticide called bethenthrin. Had Catherine been poisoning Ron all along? Kind of looked like it, but it was hard to know for sure. The autopsy showed that Ron's body contained none of that insecticide, and there had been a lag between the murder and the bottle being taken in as evidence, so you just never knew. Catherine appeared in court silent and stone-faced, according to one journalist. She pled not guilty and was held without bail as the case against her progressed. 
Bizarrely, her sister, Melissa, called up the police and told them that they should keep looking further because she thought Catherine had something to do with Angela's death in St. Lucia back in 2009. Clearly, the animosity between the sisters ran deep. First-degree murder charges or no first-degree murder charges. It wasn't until Catherine's trial started three years later, in 2014, that her story of the murder emerged. By then, she was no longer dyeing her long brown hair, and so she had gone completely gray. Her defense argued that she was a battered woman, and she had killed Ron in an act of self-defense. Her version of the night went like this. Ron was mad at her because he was trying to sell his condo, and she interrupted the showing of it to a potential buyer. So they fought, and fought some more. He was drunk and raging. The fight got bad. He pulled out a gun, and he pointed it at her as she knelt before him, and he said that she didn't deserve to live. I lost control of my bowels, she testified. Her voice was quiet and a bit wavery. My whole body was shaking. Then he lowered the gun, and I got up and ran up the stairs. Ron chased her, but he tripped, fell back down the stairs, and bashed his head. That ended the fight for the moment. She helped him up, cleaned his wound, took him into the bedroom, and helped him lie down in the bed. Then she took a bath, changed her filthy clothes, and then she saw the gun. And she picked it up, and she realized that it had been loaded that whole time the whole time he was pointing it at her. Everything changed when I saw that, she said. It was like an out-of-body experience. The fear I had, the anger, all came together. I was afraid. I was mad, like I've never been before. I put the bullets back in the gun. Then I went back in the bedroom. I went to the opposite side of where he was. I held the gun out, closed my eyes, and pulled the trigger. When Catherine fired, she hit Ron Vinci in the head. And then, she stabbed him in the chest. And she slit his throat, hit his head with a hammer, wrapped him up, as though she were trying to reverse all the damage, stuffed paper towels in his mouth, taped up his stomach with blue painter's tape, wrapped him in a mattress cover, a sheet, towels, plastic bags, and finally put the whole thing into a red sleeping bag. She cut the bloody spots out of the mattress and hid them in the garage, along with her bloody clothes and the gun and the knife. At 1 a.m., she called Reynaldo, the handyman, asking him to rent a U-Haul and come over. Then she texted him, never mind, He came over at 8.30 a.m. the next morning, and she showed him the sleeping bag, shaped so horribly like a body, and said, he fell down the stairs. She told Reynaldo that Ron's dream had always been to be buried at sea, so would he help Ron achieve this dream by flinging his body into the ocean? Of course, poor Reynaldo was completely freaked out by this point, but he held it together and stalled for time, saying something like, uh, one sec, the body's a little bit heavy, I'm gonna have to go get a dolly. That was when he ran off and called Spencer, saying, Ron's past, Ron's past. 
In the meantime, Catherine went to Home Depot and bought that huge blue plastic container, presumably to act as Ron's makeshift coffin. Do you believe you were in danger? Her defense lawyer asked her on the witness stand. Yes, she said. Do you believe he would have gotten up and killed you in the middle of the night? Yes. Did you plan any of this? No, I didn't. Do you still love him? Yes, I do. Bullshit, said the prosecution. A self-defense killing when the man in question was passed out in bed with a head wound? They argued that there was far too much time between when Ron allegedly threatened her with the gun and when she came back to kill him with that same gun. She could have run out of the house, they said. They also brought up the fact that Catherine had broken up with Ron before, back in the 2000s, before she had that brief marriage. If she was so terrified of him, how was she able to break up with him then but couldn't do it now? There was no evidence of physical abuse, they argued. And what about all her viciousness, the violence of the murder? The defense brought in a psychologist who argued that the overkill, the slashing and stabbing and the hammer to the head, was, quote, consistent with battered spouse syndrome. Despite details like the buying of the diving weights and the use of coffee grounds— Apparently, neither she or Ron drank coffee, so the fact that she even had coffee grounds on hand seemed significant. Despite all that, the judge decided that there wasn't enough evidence of premeditation for a first-degree murder charge. So by the time the jury sat down to deliberate, they were looking at a second-degree murder charge. They debated for 13 hours and then found her guilty. The judge gave her 25 years, and that was that. Today, Catherine Pileggi is at Hernando Correctional Institution, 303 miles away from her old life of luxury at 101 Coconut Drive. Her release date is August 6, 2034. Today, she's almost 65, but her skin looks smooth and luminous in her current mugshot. In article after article about the case, Ron Vinci's personality is examined, like someone turning a piece of sea glass over and over. He was a complicated man, the articles conclude. There was the fun-loving Ron, the joker at $1 Taco Tuesdays, the wealthy retiree who flew his own planes. And then there was the dark Ron, the heavy gin drinker the guy who asked a friend to break up with his girlfriend, the guy who once pushed that girlfriend down the stairs of the yacht named after himself. But where were the articles examining the life of Catherine Pileggi? I was shocked to see how little was written about her as a person. People usually trip over themselves trying to figure out female murderers. And Catherine had two important things going for her when it came to getting press coverage— she was pretty, and she was white. Plus, her past was dotted with these mysterious and tantalizing tidbits. The brief marriage, the dead sister, the inter-sibling lawsuits, the cheerleader turned flight attendant turned murderess. Who was this woman? What did she want? 
Hell, why was she so afraid of water? No one answered any of these questions. And without answers and context, it's hard to know how to interpret her claim in the courtroom that Ron had abused her physically and sexually and verbally for years. We know she was quiet and that Ron bullied her. And we know about the incident with the stairs on the yacht. But we also know that she wasn't someone who just sat there. She was a planner. Someone who said, no, I won't break up with him. And then went out and bought diving weights. What could a woman like that do? There's a great long-form article about this case from 2012 that was published in the Broward Palm Beach New Times. In it, a journalist visits 101 Coconut Drive, which is full of Ron's friends. Ron's presence fills the house and the story. One of his friends tells the journalist that she's heard Ron's ghost going around the house and slamming the doors. As usual, Catherine is in the background of it all. Quiet. Gray-haired now. Alone with her secrets. Almost a ghost herself. The end, and that is the story of Catherine Pileggi, who sits in prison to this day. Her release date is sometime in the 2030s, which actually sounds sort of soon. Well, not that soon, though. She will be, I believe, 78 or 79 when she is released. All right, I hope you enjoyed this episode, or if enjoyed is not quite the right word, I hope you took something from this episode. And I'd like to thank this episode's two amazing, intelligent, and gorgeous patrons, Melissa T. and Justin W. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If anyone else wants to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do this. You can always use a promo code for one of my advertisers. That's very helpful. You can go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads to donate and... You can leave a review saying, best podcast ever, but in your words, <laughs> because I would never tell you what to say. Okay, love you all so much. Thanks for being the best listeners ever, and I'll meet you here next week, same time, same place. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.